joined us for the second Sunday of 21 Days of Prayer. If you have a Bible and you want to go ahead and get where we're going, two primary passages today, Luke 11, Luke 18, Luke 11, Luke 18. So when I was in seminary, we had a book that we would read um, pretty consistently, two different classes, so it was a big deal. Uh, it was a New Testament survey book, so it was a big, thick book, cost a lot of money, and uh, it talked a lot about the stuff that's in the New Testament, so it was really, really, really cool. But the guy who wrote the book, a gentleman by the name of D.A. Car- uh, Carson, wasn't just a good theologian and book writer. He certainly could do that very well. He's written many books. You can Google him. It's a big deal. Um, but he was also a pastor at one point, and he talked a lot about both the content of the Bible, and then he talked about how the Bible can impact a person's life. So he did this really remarkable thing of kind of doing the academic thing and at the same time being very, very grounded in practicality about how it worked. And in one particular occasion, I got to hear D.A. Carson talk live, and it was just a really, really cool thing to be reading a guy's book and then have a chance to meet him and get to talk to him a little bit afterwards. And the session that he was speaking to us about was about prayer. And I remember he made this comment, and it left just a, a big mark on me. He said, it's real easy to impress people with what you know about the Bible. Uh, If you do a little bit of study, a little bit of research, you can walk into a room full of Christians and with just a little bit of effort, you can kind of speak the thing, talk the talk, sound very knowledgeable, and be very knowledgeable. It's very easy to impress people with your knowledge about the Bible. It's very easy to impress people with your with your grasp of general theology. And so theology is just the study of God. And so you can go beyond the Bible and look at what has happened over the last couple thousand years of church history, and you can learn certain things and certain concepts, and you can impress people a lot with theology. So Bible and theology, but it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult, unless you're a person of seasoned prayer, to pray in such a way that people take notice. And then he said, he said, in fact, if you want... If you want to embarrass the average Christian, we we don't today, so this is a rhetorical question. He said, if you want to embarrass the average Christian, start asking them the details of their prayer life. Like, no, no, tell me when you pray. Tell me what you've been praying about lately. Uh, uh, Tell me what time you've set aside. When was the last time you broke the pattern that you have of prayer? He said, Bible and theology, this this is knowledge stuff, and we are, if you're verbally gifted at all, you can use words. But prayer is one of those things that takes an incredible amount of discipline. And the the truth is, the truth is, is that most Christians struggle with prayer. Now, if that's you at all today, uh, you're in the right place for a couple reasons. One, because that's what we're talking about. But two... Because I want to take you to the words of Jesus. And if anybody understood the power of prayer, it was Jesus. And Jesus actually offers some words to people like me who on occasion prayer hasn't marked my journey with Jesus like it should. I lacked the discipline. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about discipline today. And I want to let you in on a secret. The key to an active prayer life as a follower of Jesus isn't simply discipline. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you discipline is actually quite lower on the list. and Maybe makes the top ten, but it, it's certainly in the top two or three or four things. We're going to talk about those things today. In fact, I think there's a couple of other realities that if you understand that they're real, they're true, they're actual, they're factual, they're happening around you, if you'll grab hold of that, I think the discipline, at least in my life it's been true, has come easier when I understood what was really going on. 
I think it's very, very fascinating that the disciples who were around Jesus regularly and listened to him preach, not one time in the New Testament did the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to preach. That bothers me. Because I wish there were a passage in the Bible that says, here's how to preach according to Jesus. It'd make my job a whole lot easier. They, they, they never asked teach. And they saw him do incredible miracles. And not one time do we have recorded in the New Testament did they say, hey, Jesus, teach us how to do miracles. What they said to him was, teach us how to pray. And that's just fascinating in light of the fact that if we could pull the curtain back on most Christians including the ones in this room, certainly the one on this stage, prayer doesn't typically mark our lives in the way that other Christian activities do. But it can. I want to suggest to you that it should, but not should in a way that it puts a weight on you, but it should in such a way that it actually lifts the weight off. So last week we talked about the Lord's Prayer, and so, so many of you sent such kind um, thoughts and reflections on the message last week. Thank, thank you for that. And one small group, they're praying the Lord's Prayer together uh, for the next few weeks, and uh, others are kind of doing some studies on the Lord's Prayer and the various versions they learned as a kid and as an adult, and some are even looking at the different English translations of the Lord. It's really, really, really cool when that happens. Today I want to take you to the next set of verses. Remember, we started with Luke um, 11, which is where the disciples asked Jesus to pray, but we started our conversation talking about Mark chapter 1, verse 35, which is where Jesus kind of gives us some insight how to make prayer a part of your life as a disciple. The Bible says this about Jesus, that very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And then in Luke chapter 1, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So last week we talked about, in your message notes again, just for a reminder, having a certain time and a certain place and a certain plan to pray. In 2019, when that year started, we started talking an awful lot, and I do a consistently right here, about chair time, where you spend an appointment with God. Like you would make an appointment to go to the doctor or have lunch with a friend. This is the time when I sit down and I carve out my calendar around chair time. So I spend 15 minutes with the Lord a day, a few days a week. And last week I challenged you to find three to five minutes a day where you have a certain time and a certain place and a certain approach or a certain plan to praying. And I suggested to you that if you'll spend 300 of the next 360 or so days, 50 or so days now, praying with a certain time, a certain place, and a certain plan, that I promised you it would make a difference in your life. It's interesting, when Jesus got done teaching his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer, the very next verses we're going to look at right here answer what I think is one of the most common objections to prayer. Why it is people don't pray. But before we do that, I want you to see something that I think the disciples must have seen about Jesus. And it seems like Luke is going out of his way to make sure that we see it too. Because all throughout Luke, we see Jesus praying. It's like Luke who wrote Luke and Acts in our Bible. It seems like he wants to make prayer a priority in his writings, more so than the other gospel writers. They all tell the same story of Jesus, very, very similar. But each of them highlights different things. And Luke seems to want to highlight prayer. So 
So in Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus praying at his baptism. In chapter 4, he prays through his temptation. In chapter 5, the Bible tells us he often gets alone to pray. In chapter 6, it reveals that before Jesus chose his disciples, he spent time praying. In chapter 9, before he presented his disciples with the big question, who do people say that I am, he spent the afternoon in prayer. And after they made their declarations, putting their lives at risk, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the Bible tells us that they went up on a mountain, he took them up on a mountain to pray. And then in Luke chapter 18, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught his disciples always to pray. And in chapter 11, where we're parked today, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray after all they had seen and all they had heard. The thing they wanted to know about Jesus more than anything else was prayer. And then in chapter 22, Luke says that Jesus promises Peter that he'll pray for Peter when Peter's going to go through his trial. And then in 22, a little bit later on, Jesus commands his disciples to pray that they won't fall into temptation. And then in chapter 23, Luke shows us that Jesus' last breath at the hour of his death was filled with prayer. Luke is a gospel of prayer. It shows Jesus' prayer life on steroids. And then the next book, Luke's right, which is kind of like Luke part two. We call it the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts. In fact, every single chapter in the book of Acts, prayer is mentioned in every single chapter of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the church was powerful and alive and they overcame obstacles and people walked in the power of the spirit. And in every chapter surrounding every story, prayer is specifically mentioned. It's true that the early church was marked by prayer. They were marked by power, which flowed from their prayer. It was not something that was optional for the early church. Prayer was fundamental for the early church. But the sad truth for most of us is, and it's certainly been true for me, that prayer has not been fundamental to my life. It's actually been somewhat supplemental. I almost will do anything else first naturally. If I don't make myself, find my time, get my place, have my plan, prayer seems to me to be a last option. And I bet you I'm not the only one in the room. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people don't pray, but I want to submit to you a couple of them that church people typically don't like to talk about. The truth is is that sometimes when you pray and things happen when you pray, that's the truth. But the other side of the story is sometimes when you pray, things don't happen. And sometimes you don't have to pray about things that matter to you, and eventually they work out anyway. And so all of us kind of come to know by our experience that prayer doesn't seem to be all that essential anyway because most of the challenges that happen in our life over time kind of work themselves out. And so we learn a faulty but practical theology that prayer doesn't seem to be as essential as the pastors seem to want us to believe it is and certainly not as essential as it looked like Jesus did in Luke and the disciples do in Acts because a lot of times it just works out the other side of that is sometimes people have prayed very fervently about things that were very very important and it didn't happen 
And people have left churches over that. They've broken relationships over that. They have deep hurt in their heart. Some people, probably even in this room, actually have anger and hurt in their heart at God for not answering the prayers that they earnestly, sincerely prayed for a long time. It happens to kids when things ugly go on in the home and they pray that God would make it stop and it doesn't. This is the underside of prayer that affects our thinking. So it's very encouraging to me then when we get to Luke chapter 11 that Jesus seems to understand that prayer for disciples can be a difficult thing. It shouldn't be, but it is. And rather than Jesus spending all of his time telling us that it shouldn't be, get in line, he seems to slow down, actually understand that it is, and wants to help us, not just correct us. Do you ever have a boss? Do you ever have a co-worker who had some, a, little, a little bit of authority, and it seemed like what they really wanted to do was just correct? They didn't really want to help get the thing done? Some of you grew up in a home where parents, when they engaged, it was just correction, but they didn't want to like come alongside and show you how to do the thing. Jesus here is being a master shepherd, a master parent, a great big brother, and he's going to show what's wrong, but he's going to show practically how mechanically to work through it. So when they ask him, teach us to pray, he gives them this model prayer. But in chapter 11, verse 5, we get this remarkable story that I want to share with you. Here's what our Bible says. So he's just given the Lord's Prayer, and the Bible says, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, he's talking about prayer now. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is part of why a lot of people struggle with prayer. There is something going on in prayer that isn't as intuitive and obvious to us as it may have been to the disciples. Today's message is all about trying to elevate some of these realities to see if it doesn't impact your discipline. I'm not asking you to just work it out. I'm not asking you to just find grit and just do it anyway. Today, what I want you to do is try to understand what motivated Jesus and the disciples to pray. And my hope is is that your understanding of that will help your discipline because when you pray disciplinedly, over time it changes your life. It brings you more into alignment with God's agenda for you as a disciple. 
It opens more of God's goodness to be delivered to you unhindered throughout the course of your life. So if you struggled with this, the good news is that there's not something wrong with you. You're pretty normal. You're just like the disciples. One difference in them may be, though, that they pressed in to understand why it was that Jesus' prayer life was so different than theirs. And that's really what I want to encourage you to do today. When they had hangups with prayer, Jesus doesn't just say, fix it. He tells this story. Now, I want us to kind of unpack the story for a second to make sure that its key pieces are obvious to us. The first piece of the story I want us to acknowledge is that hospitality in Jesus' world was a very, very big deal. This guy doesn't want to send his guest away hungry at midnight. He doesn't want to do that. Now, it's midnight, so in a country without electricity, midnight literally means the middle of the night. It doesn't mean like in our world. At midnight, you're still up on Facebook. You're just trolling. You're not commenting, but you see everything that's going on. All right? So some of you do that last night just like I did. I couldn't sleep. All right? That's what that means, all right? So when sundown happens, it's bedtime. So by the time it's midnight, they've been in bed for four hours. So they're well into REM cycle here, all right? And then notice it says that he's in bed with his children. Now, Jill and I have four kids, and I can tell you, at our house, when we were, the kids were younger, we were trying to put the kids to bed, if anybody made a noise, I was incredibly angry and frustrated because it took us great effort. And when we had one kid, it was one thing, but then we had like two kids and then three, and we'd get two down, but the third one would cry. And for just a minute, I hated my kid because he would make life hard for all of us. And so here he is in bed with kids in the house and somebody's banging on the door. This is not a welcomed engagement, right? So I don't have to tell you how irritating that would be. He's banging on the door, not just one or two. He doesn't just ring the doorbell and go, oh, I see the lights are off. I guess they're not home. No, he knows the lights are off and he knows they're home and he's not giving up. You're beginning to get a sense of the story at least. And I love it because in the story we read, the word friend is used. Friend, lend me three loaves. It's an interesting way to begin the conversation. Because at that moment, he would not be a friend to me. Friend, lend me three loaves. This is a good word to use. Because when somebody wakes you up in the middle of the night with young kids in the house, they're on thin ice, all right? Here's something else to notice. He doesn't really have an emergency. Right? It's a big deal, but it's not really an emergency. It's not like he's saying, hey, my house is on fire. Or uh, my wife's not breathing. No, we need some bread. Now, granted, in those days, bread's a big deal. Big loaves, one loaf could feed the family for a day. Right? That's kind of the way that worked. And now he's asking for three. So it is a big request. It's pretty exorbitant. It's oddly timed. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 8. I tell you. Though he won't give up and give anything because he is his friend. That's not why he's going to get up. In fact, after this, he's probably not his friend anymore at all. But he gets up because of his impudence. So some translations say his boldness or his shamelessness. This is going to cause him to rise and get up and attend to the need. So this guy gets his request. Not because the other guy loves him or is a friend, but because of his boldness and persistence in asking. And then Jesus says, I tell you, 
Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. So the whole analogy of knocking reinforces this asking, right? So when you knock, you don't just walk up to the door and hit it once. Right? You get up and you bang away at the door is the image here. Knock and if no one comes, keep knocking and let them know that there's no use. You can pretend like you're asleep, but even if you are, I'm going to keep hitting the door, making a noise, making a ruckus until you come because I'm just one of those kinds of people who's not going to get up you might, or give up. You might as well go ahead and get up and come and answer the door. So then you say, how does all this relate to God and God's sovereignty and control and God's ability to help in prayer? Well, 100%, I'm not completely sure all the nuances, but I think there are some big movements here that can help us. Before we unpack it all the way, I want to take you to the second story. Um, if you want to look in your message notes, let me just start with this phrase, though, to put it in your head. That I think God delights to share his power with those who are bold enough to, and if you'll allow me this word, bother him. Bother him. That's the image that we get. I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to bother you until the agitation sets in and you pay attention to me. Not typically a characteristic of God that we talk about, a behavior that we're supposed to do, which is bother him. But I believe these stories actually show us that God actually isn't bothered. But our behavior, the way we act, makes it look like we think he would be bothered. So go ahead and bother him with the things that are bothering you. Now in Luke 18, we get essentially the same story. Different players and different details. Here's what the Bible says. Just so you might not forget, Luke starts with telling us the point. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So we already know what the parable is going to tell us. Always pray and don't give up. So he said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. This guy was a bit of a rebel. He did his own thing. He was an authority unto himself. God didn't make him afraid, and he didn't care what people thought. He did what he wanted to do. So this gives us a picture of this judge. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Now, when you hear a parable, if you've been around church, you may know this. If not, let me just give you a little hint. Whenever you hear a parable, there's, there's a couple things going on. One, the, the details are not as important as the overall movements, right? But there are some details that are important. So in most parables that Jesus tells, somebody is the God figure and somebody is the you figure, so in this story, we have a widowed woman who doesn't have somebody who can advocate for her. She's probably poor. Her only chance for justice is this judge who doesn't seem to really care about much of anything. And she persistently goes to him. So in this story with two players, who is the you character? Who is the us? It's the widow. She's the one who has something that's got to be tended to. She has no other option, so she keeps bothering the judge. And in this parable, who is the God character? Now, before you answer, understand, it's an awkward answer. Because in this story, it's the judge. 
And this judge is portrayed in such a way that doesn't typically sound like the heart of God that we talk about. And you'd be exactly right. Because sometimes in parables, we're supposed to compare the person in the story in the parable to God. But sometimes, like in this case, we're supposed to contrast the person in the story with God. The whole point of this story really is to show that if a heartless, godless, doesn't care about person judge, will eventually give in to a persistent person simply because they're persistent, how much more your heavenly father who actually does care, how much more and how quicker will he respond to your persistence? The widowed woman gets it right. The judge is wrong. And compare that judge to your heavenly father. And you begin to get a persistent picture of what Jesus is trying to say. That God likes you and me to agitate him with our concerns. And this is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive for a variety of reasons. One, if God already knows what's wrong... Why would I keep bothering him? I mean, he already, in fact, at one point, Jesus says, God already knows what you want before you even ask. So why do I even have to ask for what I want? And then in another sense, why, why does God seem to take some pleasure out of being asked repeatedly about what's going on with me? Again, I don't know all of it, but I think in just a moment when we look at four major things that impact prayer and disciples and you and me, I think maybe you'll get a little bit better picture of some of what's going on. My hope is as you get a little bit more understanding from these stories, that Jesus was telling his disciples as they wrestled with the fact that they didn't pray the way Jesus prayed. Now, that was in Luke. They didn't pray the way Jesus prayed. But by the time they got to Acts, they did. I mean, if they continued to pray the way they were praying in Luke, when Jesus is trying to teach them how to pray, by the time you get to Acts, Acts is probably a powerless, unimpressive series of marginal events in the life of the early church. But because they picked up on what Jesus was laying down in Luke 11, Luke 18, and all through the book, by the time you get to Acts, the disciples have been radically changed. And because they have been radically changed, primarily as prayers, people who went to God in prayer consistently, fervently, believing it made a difference, by the time you get to Acts, these people who are blundering and failing over here are being raised up in power and authority and literally turning the world upside down. And it is not a stretch. It is not evangelistic speaking. I'm not giving you preacher talk here. I'm telling you. Look at any move of God throughout church history and behind every move of God, there's a group of people who are praying. Every time. Look at any family who dramatically transforms and grows more spiritually healthy. Always, always, always prayer marks that path. I'm not saying it's only prayer, but prayer is always present. I'm not saying that the early church only prayed, but they prayed a lot. And I want to suggest to you that the enemy has deceived us in making us think that prayer doesn't matter that much because it's probably going to work out anyway. Or you prayed before and it didn't work, why would you pray this time? Or if God already knows, why pray? 
something powerful is happening in prayer. It's happening in you. It's happening between you and God. And it's happening between you and this world you're interacting with. It's that powerful of a dynamic. So when the disciples showed hesitance, Jesus did not power through and get them to the next lesson. He slowed down and he said, let me teach you about prayer. First of all, here's some things to pray. Here's kind of what I'm doing in prayer. We did that last week. Like, you know God. God knows you. Talk to him personally. And don't forget he's powerful. Pray about what's important to God and then pray about what's important to you. So we went through all that last week. And then he says, and just keep praying. In fact, here's the one sentence lesson for the day. If your prayer hasn't been finally answered, don't stop praying. Somebody just asked, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. How many of you in the room have something that's a big deal to you and God hasn't moved yet in that situation? Can I tell you the whole point of these parables? Keep praying about it. Don't put it on a shelf. There's only one time in the Bible, and it was the Apostle Paul, and he went, and the Bible says he prayed repeatedly to God over a thing, and at some point God looked at him and said, hey, Paul, I got this one. You can quit praying about it now. And then Paul responds to that endeavor, and he says, wow, I realized in the middle of my stuff, God's grace is sufficient. So both Paul got the lesson, God got the thing, and it was all resolved. Meaning, if you don't have the lesson, and if God doesn't have the thing, and if it's not all resolved, keep praying. Something's happening in you, between you and God, and between you and this world that you're interacting with. This is what Jesus was trying to convince the disciples about. It's not a small thing. I, I wish he would have said, because it'd be easier for me to preach it to you. Hey, disciples, in, in, a, in about you know, a few months, I'm going to be gone. And Luke's going to keep writing his story. And when you get to Acts, you guys are heroes. I mean, you're killing it. So all you need to do is pray these times of the day, and then you'll be ready to kill it over here. Like, I wish he had just connected those dots very mechanically to the disciples. But Jesus wasn't interested in the disciples going, man, if I pray, I'm going to be the dude over here. If I pray, people are going to look at me for the next 2,000 years of what to do if you follow Jesus. It wasn't about that. Jesus wanted them to pray because he wanted them to have an authentic, consistent, vital, personal, important connection to their heavenly father, knowing that that was the channel of life for them. And he was trying to convince them that God actually isn't bothered when you bother him. So when you start thinking you're bothering him, you're probably just now beginning to get the fact. And remember, Jesus said, come like children. Now, some of you have had children. Some of you have been around children. Some of you are grandparents. It's even more true there. You want to know the most persistent and aggravating people in the world? Kids. Dad, Thanks for picking me up from school. Never heard that one time in my life. <laughs> what happened was, Dad, how's your day? No, how's it? It's fine. Dad, can we stop at McDonald's and get some ice cream? No. Mom's got dinner on the table. We're going to go on home. Okay. Never heard okay in my life. You know what I heard next? Dad, come on. Let's stop at McDonald's and get some ice cream. <laughs> no. Mom's got dinner on the table. Okay, Dad, but can we just stop at McDonald's and get some ice cream? My kids, and it used to irritate me, 
And I reflect on it now, and I think they got something about the character of fathers and kids. There's something about this persistence that they didn't feel any restriction. There were years, and they wanted something, they just asked. They hadn't learned when it was appropriate. They hadn't thought about, you know, dad going to get mad. They, they learned all that later. But for years, they were just persistent, believing, let me tell you how weird my kids were. They thought that because of the nature of our relationship, that if they wanted something, all they had to do was ask, and I'd probably give it to them. Think how weird that sounds. And yet, that's exactly the attitude Jesus is trying to get the disciples to have. Look, if you need to picture yourself, if you need to, getting up, going to a neighbor and banging on the door at midnight, that's fine. Just do this. Make sure you bang. But perhaps that's really not the picture. Perhaps there's something else going on than just irritating the guy in bed or constantly irritating the judge. And I think there is some other stuff going on. Let me tell you blank number one. I think the core of effective prayer is really not discipline, but desperation. Desperation. In both of these stories, the you character, the me character, the us character was desperate. And I think this is hard for us. I think it's hard for us to acknowledge that we're desperate. And I think it's actually hard for us to be desperate. Remember, I'm an American. And even in the word American is the word I can. I can. I'm an American. I can. And I can a lot. There isn't a whole lot about life that I'm desperate for. I'm not an American, right? I'm an American, and I, we, we have books for dummies on any subject. There's actually, you can actually Google it right now. There's a book for dummies on prayer. Not as good as this sermon, but you can buy it. Pick any subject. You can now go to Google, because we can. You cannot know. You can have never worked on a car before, but you need to change a headlight. You got to change the oil. You got to change spark plugs. You go to Google. You Google that crap. And the next thing you know, you go out and buy the tools and you can stand. You have to watch it 52 times. But you can change a headlight. You can change your oil because we can. But the I can attitude is diametrically opposed to what the Bible says to disciples about our relationship with the Lord. Here's what the Bible says to us about our relationship with God. Apart from me, you can do, do you know the next word? Nothing. This is the attitude of dependence that makes discipleship actually very hard. It's at the core of why we don't pray, I believe. And what is it going on in your life right now that apart from God, you're powerless to affect? For most of us, it's not income. For some of us, maybe. Even when it comes to health, we know a lot about health these days, and so there's some things you can do. I mean, you may choose not to do it, but you could. I mean, some of you know you could lose weight like, you know, I've done a handful of times. You could, and you may not, but you know how. You can. But what is it you're desperate about? My kids are launching into adulthood. They're doing a pretty good job at it. I think they're doing a better job at it than Jill and I are doing watching them go at it, but they're doing okay. We're... We're getting more desperate because we're learning there's some things we just can't do. Like it's on them. It's between them and the Lord. 
It's amazing how much more vital my prayer life is when I look at my kids or my congregation or people I care about and I realize there are things I cannot do. It takes me a while to get there because I almost think, well, if I can craft this conversation correctly. I approached my parenting this way when we first started. There are eight or nine secrets of parenting that if you learn them, you're pretty much going to be a good parent. So I would ask good parents, and you know good parents when you see them. Um, I would ask good parents pretty consistently, what did you do? And here's what I was thinking. If you just tell me your insider secrets, then I'll do those insider secrets and my kids will be okay. But can I tell you something? You can work all the insider secrets on parenting. At the end of the day, your kid can still be mean, a jerk, disobedient, heartless, thoughtless. They can and they do. Because with parenting, it's not all about the right skills fully. There's something else that has to happen in that dynamic. And eventually, really what has to happen is that son or that daughter has to press into God fully. And here's what I've learned about. I can make it difficult for my kids to come to God. I can. But I can't make them come to God. That doesn't seem fair at all. But that's the way it works. I can make it smoother, more obvious, not weird to do God stuff, but I can't make them come to God. You know the only person the Bible says can make my kids come to God? You know who that is? God. I can't. Oh. I can't make any of you come to God. I can't make any of you be obedient. I can't make any of you act like disciples. You know who can? The Lord. I used to think if I could just talk with you right, if I could just say the right words, if I could preach 10% better, then we'd be 10% better disciples. But I want to tell you something. I'm preaching really good, and some of y'all stink. Meant to be a joke. Meant to be a joke. That's the way I feel sometimes, right? I can't. There are things that only God can do. And when you realize that, desperation rises. When desperation rises, you know what people do? They feel the urge to pray. That's exactly what God wants to have happen here. Paul Miller, who writes a great book on prayer called The Praying Life, he writes these words. He says, if you're not praying, then you're quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you really need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy to pray. But if, like Jesus, you realize that you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find the time. So I want to ask you again. Is there anything going on in your life that you cannot do but needs to happen? Then keep banging on that door. Keep talking to God. Because this is where God likes to show up. It could be that perhaps, disciple, you're not praying enough because you're not desperate enough. Now, I would like to, for the next six minutes or so, tell you about how you should be desperate about the things that I'm desperate about. Because while I was preparing this message series, I started compiling a little bit of a list. And honestly, it kept me up most of the night. As I was reflecting on, all right, Ben, what are you really desperate about? And dear God, after about five minutes of reflection, it was like the dam burst, and I filled the pages of my mind with things I cannot do but need to happen. And I was ashamed and I felt convicted, and I felt compelled that prayer has to be more a mark of my own journey. 
Now, there is an imperfect judge. There is an imperfect neighbor in our stories. But we serve a perfect God who did everything right. So if just learning more skill was the answer to your troubles, then I want you to consider Jesus, or consider your heavenly father, who was a perfect father. And one-third of the angels and the first two human beings he created rebelled. So just doing it right wasn't enough. Something has to happen. You can't be a good enough husband for your marriage to be perfect. You can't be a good enough wife for your marriage to be perfect. Something has to happen. And I want to suggest that something for a disciple is the Lord. So when you go to him in prayer, it pulls God into those things. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 and 6, he says, Humble yourself in prayer under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. So who does the exalting? It's the Lord. So my hope in my parenting is not in my parenting skills, but it's in the Lord himself. And my hope in my marriage is not in my husbanding skills, it's in the Lord himself. And I hope and success for the mission of our church is not in my ability to preach or Joseph's ability to lead or Will's ability to lead or Melissa's or any of the other team that we have. It's in the Lord showing up and doing his thing. So not skill, not even biblical skill, can cause the human heart to walk in life with Christ. One of the most tragic things in the world would be to learn all the biblical wisdom about life and reject the one who is the life giver himself. So learn skill. Yes, I'm all about it. At the end of the day, are you desperate for God to show up? Because if he doesn't, it isn't going to happen. The next blank. I believe our prayers would be more bold if we really knew our heavenly father loves us as a cherished child. So the two people in Jesus' parable come with extravagant big requests. And if this is how they come to a stingy friend and to an unrighteous judge, how much more boldly should we come to our heavenly father who loves us? The woman approached as a stranger to the judge, uncared for. We get to come to our judge who loves us deeply as beloved children. She had no rights to claim in court. But we have the blood of Jesus Christ who tore, that tore down the barrier between, ours and our heaven, between us and our heavenly father and allows us to approach his throne with boldness, the Bible says. The judge we approach is not one who doesn't care about justice at all. In fact, this judge climbed out of his judge chair and went and took on our own punishment. That's how much he cares about justice. And the friend we approach is not asleep, but he's attentive to us, and he knows what's going on. And he says, come to me. Come to me. Our kids come to us with undaunting, undaunting confidence, and we're invited to come with childlike faith to our Heavenly Father the same way. And it's meant to increase the boldness of our prayers. There's desperation, there's boldness, and then number three, there's persistence in prayer. When you are persistent in prayer, what you're really doing is you're displaying your confidence in God's innate goodness. God, until I have a definitive answer, I'm going to keep coming to you, believing that you're a good God who cares about what matters. Persistence. It shows up over and over and over again. Because of his impotence, it happened. In chapter 18, because he continually came, it happened. The rest of scripture bears this out. People kept praying until God showed up. 
The answer and the point for us is clear. Keep praying. Don't give up. Recapture prayers you used to pray that you put on a shelf because you got tired of praying. You, you felt victim to this thing that God doesn't care if he doesn't move in my time. There's desperation. There's boldness. There's persistence. And finally, trust. And in fact, this one might be the hardest one. There's trust here. Trust is allowing God to answer your prayer by giving you what you would have asked for if you had his wisdom. The challenge is, is we don't have the wisdom of God. So what we're invited to do is we're invited to ask God for everything we think we need and everything that sounds like it's good to us and the timing that we want it to happen. And we're supposed to ask persistently and boldly without reserve. And then we trust with that request, God gives us exactly what he wants to give us in his time, which is always for our good. At the core of a lot of our barriers to prayer is a fundamental belief. Do you actually think God is good for you and has a good heart? Does he really care? I mean, if he doesn't answer your prayer the way you think he should, is he good for you? Is he good to you? Recently, one of my spiritual giants that I watched from afar and had a chance to meet him very, very briefly, a gentleman by the name of Tony Evans, pastors a large African-American church in the Dallas area. His wife passed away with cancer just a couple weeks ago. Before that happened, the whole church was praying, thousands of people. One of their sister churches just a few miles away, passed by another great guy, Matt Chandler, the village church. That whole church was praying for Tony Evans' wife, and churches all over the world were praying. I, I prayed for her. And the prayers for healing went unanswered. The Lord took her home. And so a few days ago, I got to watch this funeral. You can Google it, Tony Evans' wife. And I watched her children process in front of this massive crowd their disappointment that the Lord didn't answer their prayer they wanted him to, the way he, that they felt he should have. I mean, they couldn't imagine a better answer to prayer than mom coming back to full health and fully engaging with their dad and the ministry that's happening. And they even talked about it this way. They said, after all our family has sacrificed for the kingdom of God, after all we've been through, after all the ways that God has used us, it just seemed reasonable that God would answer our prayer this way. And one of the sons got up and he began to process this. And what he said was, is that I wanted God to say yes to my prayer. And instead of a yes, listen to what he says. Instead of a yes, I got a yes. He said, I prayed that God would bring my mom to health. And God said, all right, I'm going to bring your mom to health. And he did. Because the answer to my prayer was that my mom would be healed. And she was healed. Wasn't healed in the way I wanted. But without a doubt, she was healed. And I prayed that my mom would continue to be around family. And at first I thought I didn't get that answer. And then I realized that when the Lord took my mother home, she was with family then, her spiritual family. She was with the Lord, her big brother. She was with her heavenly father. But all of us would one day be with her as well. So I got the answer to my prayer. It just wasn't the way I thought. I got a yes. Jesus said in answer to my prayer, you wanted to be with family? The answer is yes. Trust me to work it out right. And I wanted my dad to have peace and comfort and a partner as he continued to do ministry. And that's what I prayed for. And the Lord said, yes. He took my mom. He left us here. He'll unite them both together later. And Jesus said, the answer to your prayer is yes. And here's what it made me reflect on for just a moment. That perhaps 
we're not thinking broadly enough about the big stuff that God wants to do. What if while you pray for your kids, God doesn't want to just deal with the thing that's going on right now in their life that has your heart troubled. What if he wants to totally capture their hearts for all that he has for them and make them bold, visible, active disciples? I mean, what, what if, what, what if, God forbid, but what if, what if he wants to use some of the challenges that they're going through that we're praying for, and we should keep praying, but what he wants to do is he wants to use that to create in that person you're praying for going through that ugly thing to get them ready to receive even a better gift than just the removal of that thing in their life. What if something so profound is going on in prayer that it's hard for us to discern And I want to suggest to you it is. And so what God does is he says this. He says, would you trust me? Would you trust me? So come to me, ask me, make it clear, talk to me, be persistent, and then let me have it. Trust me to be good for you and good for the world. Let me me hear you Use language and turn your heart towards me as your good father. So tell me what you think you need. Do it boldly and then let me, like a great parent, not give you everything you want when you want it, but let me understand the bigger picture in ways that maybe you don't. And would you trust me? I want to suggest it's not so much a discipline problem. I think we have a desperation problem. And I think we have a trust problem. Over the next few weeks, I just want to ask you, as we kind of continue 21 days of prayer, is there anything you're desperate for God to show up and do? If not, I bet you to some degree you're on autopilot. And disciples are not supposed to be on autopilot. God is the one who's meant to animate and motivate our lives. There is nothing of spiritual value that can happen apart from the Lord. So we are totally dependent on him. This is why I'm hoping you'll find your chair time, and I'm hoping you'll find your prayer time. And I think 300 or so days of three to five minutes prayer in 2020 will change your life. Why don't you grab out your connect card? Let's take a step or two. Next at bay is today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. You don't yet have a relationship with this Heavenly Father that we've been describing. The Bible says you can change that in a moment. You can declare, God, I'm a sinner. I want you to save me. Would you wash me clean? I trust the work you did for me on my behalf. I trust in that alone to save me. We'd ask you to take your pen and check next at bay on that connect card that you heard out that you heard about earlier. And then when the offering buckets come by, put it in the offering bucket. We'll communicate with you about what it means to be a child of God. And in a minute, I'm gonna pray and give you a chance to say to God, God, save me. I wanna be your child. I wanna trust you as my father. Our next step B says, I wanna be baptized on February 9th. That's our next baptism here. It's gonna be a great day. Gonna be a great day. We're gonna celebrate people who are brought from death to life by the power of Jesus. And it happened in our congregation because of the work God let us be a part of. It's gonna be a wonderful day. You wanna be baptized, just check it. That's how you start the conversation. If you think you might wanna be baptized, check it. That's how you start the conversation. And we'll complete that together. And the next step C says, hey, would you please pray with me? There's something in my life I'm desperate for God to do. If you wanna tell us what it is, turn the card over and write it. 
you don't, that's okay. We'll throw your name on a list this week. I will personally pray for you. God, one of your children's desperate. I can't do it without you. So we give it to you. And then you pick it back up and you pray and you talk to your heavenly father like he cares about you because he does. And then you trust him to do with it what he knows to do best for you and for everybody involved. Next step D says, hey, please sign me up for the small group number. You just simply transfer the number from inside your message notes right there to next step D, make it big and legible. Make sure we can read your email and uh, you'll get information about that group. You click through and it's all done. It's very simple, smooth process. If you want information about certain groups, again, just write them down there and you'll get that email and you'll get all the information about it. That's how we do it, all right? And the next step E says, hey, send me the link to RSVP for the grow classes. Remember each Sunday after second service, we offer lunch and a grow class. Week one is grow one, week two is grow two, so on. So the next one is January 19th, it's grow three, it's discovering your design. If you want to grow as a disciple this year, grow classes, if you haven't done them, is your best first step. So why don't you set that card aside for just a second. And if you call this church home, I wanna give you an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. I wanna, um, as the ushers are coming, I wanna tell you about a couple cool things coming up that your giving has allowed. Um, you know, it's not about money, it's about people, but money often facilitates people change. So two, two big dates, um, February 23, February 23, the uh, lady whose husband was killed in Africa, the couple that we supported, um, she's gonna be with us and tell us about what they're doing. She's gonna be with us on stage, um, telling that story, sharing what they're gonna do, how the ministry's continuing. This is a couple we supported years ago financially, and they're jumping right back in to ministry after her husband was literally murdered for sharing the gospel in a country that was not open to it. So you're gonna hear that story. Mark it on your calendar. You wanna be here February 23. And then something else that's happening because of your faithfulness. One of the most powerful speakers I've ever heard, I want you to just write this down. You can Google it and I'll tell you more about it next week. There's a lady by the name of Debbie Morris. Years ago, uh, Debbie was raped. Her boyfriend was shot. And Debbie wrestled with forgiveness for a long time, being bound by the anger and the hatred she reasonably had. And the Lord set her free from that. And uh, Debbie and I got to know each other some years ago. And uh, she's gonna share her story with us on March 1. It's gonna be a powerful, powerful Sunday. If you have friends and neighbors who wonder if the power of God's real, February 23 and March 1, back-to-back Sundays, we'll be in a message series called Grace is Greater. And we're gonna talk about God tearing down the stronghold of unforgiveness and bitterness and repairing broken hearts. And I think God's gonna do great stuff. Let me tell you how all that stuff happens. Because you, as a congregation, make it happen. You pray, you serve, you give, and God's doing dramatic things with your effort. February 23 and March 1, don't miss. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you so much that you are our loving Father who calls us into a relationship. You care for us, God, I pray that you would make us desperate enough to return to you. Help us realize that we are totally dependent upon you for everything good. And let that realization build in us a desire to talk to our heavenly father. And I pray, Father, that even as you're growing our desperation, you would grow our trust of you. That we'd learn to love you more, know you better, 
trust you more. And Father, would you take these gifts we're about to give and would you continue to use them to bring good into people's lives? I look forward to what you're gonna do in February, the first Sunday of March. Thank you, Father, for a church that is faithful and allows us to boldly conquer the enemy's deceptions and lies because of the partnership of what you have done in this place. Father, I lift up men and women that are declaring, Jesus, save me, wash away my sins. I trust you with my life. And now, Father, take our gifts, take our next steps and cause them to go far and wide for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen.